All right, I've read three books <laughs> on Alexander the Great, and I can honestly say that uh, he is one of the most mesmerizing characters I have ever studied. He's kind of like, a, a, it's like driving by a car accident, right? You just can't look away when you look at his life. His life is mesmerizing. His life is challenging. His life is, how does that even happen? Uh, at 30 years, 33 years of age, the world was his, literally. Over 200, over 2 million square miles of earth, he ruled it, like ultimate superpower. There's Pharaoh, right, from Egypt. There's Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon. There's Cyrus the Great and Xerxes from Persia. There's Genghis Khan, or as they say in Kazakhstan, Chinggis Khan from Mongolia. There's Attila the Hun from Europe. Hannibal from Carthage. There's Julius Caesar from Rome. There's Napoleon from France, and there's Adolf Hitler from Germany, and then there's Alexander the Great. He never lost a battle. Never. I take that back. He lost one major battle in his life. He couldn't tame himself. The only battle that that man could not win was the battle that beat himself. Alexander's arch enemy in life was King Darius of Persia, the superpower that was oppressing most of the Greek states at the time that he was like a teenager and rising in power. Um, in 333 B.C., so 330 years before Jesus, for some of us that need to remember that, Darius and Alexander finally meet at a mountain pass called, isn't this interesting, Isis. Now, Arian's a first-century Roman historian, and he says that Darius had 600,000 men mixed with Greek mercenaries. Alexander had 40,000 men. So to Darius and 99.9% .9 of ancient and modern military leaders, this was a no-brainer, right? This is over. It's over before it even starts. Alexander doesn't have a chance, but his name isn't Alexander the Great for nothing. He annihilates Darius's army. I mean annihilates them, obliterates them. Darius is beyond stunned. The whole world is beyond stunned. It's the impossible, right? Well, from the original memoirs of Alexander's generals, his scribes, and his soldiers that were there on the night that Alexander spoke these words to his soldiers before they went into battle, these words are from original sources. Here are the words that Arian uh, got from these sources. Here's Alexander. Our enemies are Medes and Persians, men for whose centuries have lived soft and luxurious lives. We of Macedon, for generations past, have been trained in the hard school of danger and war. Above all, we are free men, and they are slaves. They are, there are Greek troops, to be sure, in Persian service. But how different is their cause from ours? They will be fighting for pay and from not much at that. We, on the contrary, shall fight for Greece, and our hearts will be in it. As for our foreign troops, Thracians, Pannonians, Agarians, Agraeans, they are all the best and stoutest soldiers of Europe, and they will find as their opponents the slackest and softest of the tribes of Asia. And what? Finally, of the two men in supreme command, you have Alexander. <laughs> they have Darius. Oh, my. Many capable and esteemed historians argue that Alexander is one of, if not the greatest leader the world has ever seen. 
incomparable, extraordinary natural gifting. I'm talking on every scale. It's like unfair. You look at it. He had mental, intellectual, extraordinary gifts. He had physical, physical strength and endurance beyond anyone in his own armies. He was strong emotionally. He was strong relationally. I mean, his ability to envision, to envision, uh, to see bigger, brighter, better possibilities and worlds. His ability to lead unsurpassed. His ability uh, to have this personal charisma. I mean, people were just drawn to him. They were devoted to him. They would lay down their lives for him. They loved him. <laughs> his ability to endure his ability to embrace the suck, to keep going, unparalleled. Now, I want you to compare Alexander's pre-battle speech to this one. Are you ready? Here it comes. Follow me. Two words. Follow. And the text says, and immediately they left their nets and followed him. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. So the spirit immediately drove him out. So remember, Jesus is baptized. His baptism begins his earthly ministry among human beings. The next thing that happens is the spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers, uh, I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately, all right, this is the second time immediately is mentioned. So I just, I'm going to keep track. I would just do that for a habit sometimes. So immediately, second time, they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These are the, the, the brothers or the sons of thunder, right, <laughs> who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately, third time, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. Now, this is all in one day. Just so you know, this is one day. This is the one day in the life of Jesus. And they went to, into Capernaum, and immediately, fourth time on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately, fifth time, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately, sixth time, he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, seventh time, they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. 
That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick from various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Just in case you're counting, there are only two beings so far in the ministry of Jesus that know who he is, God and the demons. So it's not a very successful start so far to his ministry. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, oh Lord, we thank you that you, your salvation, reigns. And thank you that right now, as Paul says, we actually stand in the salvation. We actually stand in grace. So I pray right now that the grace by which we all stand, the sphere, the world, the realm of grace that we can't even get out of, it's the sun in our solar system, it's the planets in our solar system, it's the ground underneath our feet, the grace of God. So, Lord, because of your grace, surprise us all this morning by showing up and speaking us back to life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, anybody know the Arthur Maurice Sendek? Okay, well, he died on uh, May 8, 2012, at the age of 83. You know him as the author of Where the Wild Things Are. Remember that? That was a Caldecott winner, metal winner. Remember Max? I'll eat you up. Remember that? Well, Sendik wrote darker children's books that appealed to multi-generations of children. And the question is, why did he write these darker stories, though, for children's books, for crying out loud? The first reason, his intentional reason, was to help children face their fears. Help children deal with their fears in life. Another reason is because his books reveal something about him. There was a darker side to him. He had a troubled heart. He had an incredibly fearful heart. Syndic said, I want to be alone and work until the day my head hits the drawing table and I'm dead, kaput. In 2011, a year before he actually dies, he says, everything is over. Everything that I called living is over. I'm very, very much alone. I don't believe in heaven or hell or any of those things. Syndic wrote dark children's books because his world was dark. And you know what? Mark agrees with him. Verse 12, the Spirit immediately drives him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. So John, Jesus is baptized. His ministry begins. And what happens at this battle with the Satan in the wilderness? This is telling us the location of Jesus' ministry for the rest of his life. This is telling us the locale. This is telling us where Jesus ministers. So where does Jesus minister? In the wilderness. In dark places. Now I want you to look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God at his hand, repent and believe in the gospel. You see that now after John was arrested. Well, why, why did Jesus wait till after John was arrested to start preaching? Why did Jesus wait till after John was arrested to actually begin his, his preaching gospel ministry? I mean, after John's arrest is incredibly significant because remember, Mark is writing this and he's writing it to original hearers. Who are the original hearers? The people in his church. Well, what was his church experiencing? Peter, 
just got arrested and murdered. Why does Jesus start preaching now after John the Baptist is arrested? The answer is because Jesus works in the wilderness. Because Jesus shows up in the dark. So what's the point, Jeff? What's the point of this? This is the point. This is what Jesus is saying to you right now through this text. Follow me in the wilderness. Follow me in the dark. Follow me in the pandemic. Follow me in your anger. C.S. Lewis said, Christ takes it for granted that men are bad. And Jesus says, follow me in your sin. Follow me in your suffering. Follow me as a single mother, overwhelmed by everything. Follow me as you constantly worry about your kids. Follow me in all your relational drama. Follow me while the many in the church today <laughs> seek to replace God with the state. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow me in the dark. Some of you are thinking, Jeff, dude, I try. I try and I try. I try to follow Jesus. Following Jesus doesn't work. I've tried to follow him. I mean, I've tried every spiritual discipline, every biblical principle. I've tried every ministry technique. I've read every 500-page discipleship manual. I've tried to tap into every secret access point to the Holy Spirit. Following Jesus doesn't work. Did you notice where Jesus goes next on his busy day? After the wilderness, did you see where it goes? Look at the text, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... <clears throat> He entered the synagogue and was teaching. So where does Jesus go next? He goes to church. But something is different in church now. Something's new about church now. What is it? Verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Who were the scribes? They would have been me in that day. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? <laughs> What's different? What's new? The teaching. The teaching. So what is this new teaching? And while we're at it, what's the old teaching, right? Verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue. Do you see that Mark says their synagogue? Notice he's saying their synagogue. He's putting distance between Jesus and their synagogue and their church and their teaching. Continuing, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Notice it's in the singular, an unclean spirit. Singular, singular person. This is what gets weird. And he, still singular person, cried out again, right? Singular. What have you to do with us? Now it's plural. Now it's the many. 
Now it's the, the legion. Now it's us. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? This is so fascinating because there is no question mark in the original language here. In other words, this isn't a question like, what have you, have you come to destroy us? No, this is a declaration of war. You've come to destroy us. I know, singular person again, strange, right? It's like we don't know who this person is. Split, multi. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, when they say, I know who you are, the Holy One of God, they're not being polite. This is not a nice moment. And they're not believing. It's not like, they're not even being educated and intelligent, like, hey, man, I know who you are. What they're doing is they're naming Jesus. And in the ancient world, when you name someone, just like when, when Adam named the animals, they're trying to control Jesus. They're trying to make Jesus bow before them. They're trying to exercise power over Jesus. In other words, they're trying to have authority over Jesus. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. So what's this old teaching, y'all? What's this old teaching that the synagogue teaches, that the scribes teach, that the religious leaders teach, that the Pharisees teach? What's this old teaching that every religion teaches, every philosophy teaches, every morality and ethical system and every culture and belief system and ism teaches? What do, is this teaching that we teach, that we teach in our homes and our communities and our schools and our churches and our cultures and our cities? What is this teaching that Paul says is the basic elementary teaching of this present age. What is this teaching that even the demons teach? Answer, teaching that has no power. Teaching that has no authority. Teaching that doesn't have one drop of astonishment in it. Teaching that doesn't have one drop of amazement. The old teaching is self-effort teaching in whatever form it comes in. We call it around here good advice. And it is good advice. It just has no power. It has no authority. It's old teaching. What's the new teaching? Teaching that has what? Power. Teaching that astonishes. Teaching that's like amazing because it has power. Be silent. Come out of him. And they do. This is a new kind of teaching. This is called gospel teaching. 
Mark set it all up for us at the very beginning. Did you see it? Before we even get into the actual dynamics of real life, he tells you the main point. He gives you the big idea of what he's about to do in this whole section. He does it in verse 14. Before he even gets into what just happens, he said, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, and this is what happens when he does. I try and I try and I try. Following Jesus does, just doesn't work. I've tried every 500-page discipleship manual, every secret access point into the Holy Spirit, every discipline, every biblical principle. You know what Jesus says to you right now? He says to you right now in this passage, through this passage, follow me. Follow my new teaching. Follow gospel teaching. Some of you are thinking, but I don't want to follow Jesus, Jeff. And I have my reasons. And I bet if we sat down and had a conversation over coffee and lunch that you buy, I bet I would agree with a lot of your reasons. Well, that's weird for a pastor to say. This might surprise you, but this text is actually written for you. Why? Because no one in this text wants to follow Jesus. Look at verses 16 and 18. Jesus calling two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Did you notice they're not seeking Jesus? Jesus is seeking This is new teaching. This is the grace of God. Following Jesus is not about following your effort. It's not about following your searching, your striving, your trying harder, your techniques, your disciplines, your how-tos, and your discipleship manuals. Following Jesus is not following your effort. Following Jesus is following his effort. His searching, His seeking, His grace, His doing, His dying, His rising, His living, His justifying, His sanctifying, His changing, His transforming, Him, His effort. So Jesus says to you right now, all who are trying hard and don't think following Jesus works, He's saying to you right now, in this passage, through this passage, follow me, follow my effort. Not yours. Some of you are thinking, I'm too broken, Jeff, to follow Jesus. You don't know how bad I am. I'm I'm a bad person. A family member told me and my dad this on their deathbed while my dad and I were talking to him about Jesus. I want you to look at verses 29 through 34. This is still the same day. This is a long day. And I complain. Shapers. 
Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they took him, told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were very sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at his door. Can you imagine that? How tired must he be? And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there's this discussion that comes up amongst the characters. They're all trying to figure out uh, who the true king of Middle-earth is and how will you know who the true king of Middle-earth is. Like, if the true king of Middle-earth shows up, how are we going to know? He could be standing here right now for all we know, and we don't have a clue. And so the discussion goes on, the debate goes on, and then the answer is finally given. How will you know who the true king is? And the answer is the hands of the king are healing hands. And thus shall the rightful king be known. I'm so broken. I'm such a bad person. Jesus says to you, follow me. I have healing hands. Healing. 